Welcome to the Let's Develop podcast, where we explore stories and tools for social change to transform ourselves and the world around us. My name is Arda Soyans, and my voice will go with you for this ride. By tuning in now, you'll learn from experts from fields as diverse as health, community organizing, business, performance, and more, who share their tactics and mind frames, successes, and defeats. Whether you've yet to begin your own social change efforts, or you're looking to refine them and grow your abilities, this podcast is designed to inspire you on your journey. So head on over to letsdeveloppodcast.com for detailed show notes and other info about this and other episodes. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening to let us know how we're doing. Your feedback shapes our journey. And with that, let's dive in. Philosopher, pedagogue, and investor, Patrick J. Hilario has spent his life continually learning and asking questions. On most days, he finds himself teaching the empirical and social sciences. On most evenings, he spends his time tutoring or instructing breaking and breakdance classes. On his free time, he's mostly working on his investment plan for his family, and that revolves around collecting dividends, royalties, and rent checks. Patrick J. Hilario is also a trilingual, three-time published author, and his writing has taken him to 11 different countries. His philosophy is simple. Reverse engineer the life you want and get a head start on things that need to be done. This conversation is partly about philosophy and, in particular, applied ethics and existentialism. We also explore Patrick's journey into book writing and financial literacy. A diverse conversation with a diverse individual. Join us. Patrick, you and I go back a, a little while, hey? Yeah, exactly. We met in Quebec City. Yep, in Laval, University of Laval. University of Laval, we did a French exchange program. Um, so we are true Canadians. <laughs> On parle français et uh, we speak English as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the reason that I wanted to invite you to the Let's Develop podcast is because I've been paying attention to the content that you produce um, on Instagram and other social media channels. And I found you to be... Um, interesting and engaging and putting out content that's inviting and informative as well and you know not everybody does that <laughs> and there's something about what you do that's that's around um social change really in 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 all your capacities so that being said what's um what's your best hope for a conversation today best hope today really is I guess promote some of the things that I found to be fairly important, uh, I guess in life in general. A lot of what I talk about is philosophy. Um, just try to document as much as I can about it and how it's helped my life, how it can, I think it can help others. Uh, but also with, uh, I guess, the importance of education. Uh, I guess we'll go more into that later on as we talk about like pedagogy, which is like the art and science of education or learning mm. and then also with like investing so with like those three things philosophy education and like investing i found that those things we can't really avoid in or maybe we shouldn't i guess we can't avoid those things uh in our like day-to-day -day lives but in my opinion i don't think that we should like we should probably question some of the things in life so that we can have a better understanding of it and maybe not fall into someone else's agenda so easily uh, we should probably be educating ourselves even after high school or after university just because life is it's complex there's more things to figure out than what we can learn in 
12 to who knows 12 to 20 years of our life uh, of our lives and then also with like investing i mean we live in a capitalist society so i i feel like we should probably learn about what runs this society and what are the maybe pros and cons of that or how can we like, take advantage of the reality that we were born into? I mean, mm-hmm. I was never asked to be born into a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. And you probably never were asked either, yeah. but this is, this is where we ended up. So you should probably try and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why don't we start off with philosophy? Mm-hmm. Um, offline, as we were talking, you mentioned philosophy being the sort of the backbone, central to how you think about the world why philosophy um yeah i don't know it's interesting you say that because i've had come up with a couple of theories but at the end of the day i'm just like i don't know why i found myself so attracted attracted to philosophy um, it started when i was in grade 11 really like we had we were in french class and we were starting a new unit and we were talking about uh, getting into the stranger it was an introduction to Albert Camus' uh, L'Etranger, it's in French, but it's called The Stranger. Um, anyway, it's like a philosophical text, mostly existentialism. existentialism. Um, and I remember sitting there in class and the teacher was introducing all these new ideas um, and I had no idea what she was talking about. It was the one time in class in high school uh, that I felt like I didn't understand something. And I was, I was pretty privileged that way that ever since I was a kid, my parents always surround me with books. Um, a lot of the things that I ran into in high school and in school, uh, I've kind of already read somewhere. So it was already like, the idea was already there. Um, I was a fairly bright kid, uh, I'd like to say. And things never really came um, with much difficulty when it came to like academics when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then running into philosophy, I was like, oh my God, like I don't understand a word that she's saying. Um, but I've been in French immersion my whole life. Like this shouldn't be a language barrier, but it felt like she was using a completely different language in class. Mm. Um, and at the end of the lecture or whatnot, she asked the class, oh, so like, what was I talking about this whole hour? And then the class is just silent. Crickets. And yeah, like crickets, like no one knows, I don't know. And then I'd, I was sitting there and I asked a couple questions and I was like, were you saying that we don't have to believe that everything some like adults say is true. Um, so so that... wait, so so you you caught that in that very first class? You said those things um, like it came to you. Yeah, I had caught some questions. Yeah, like I didn't. I just wrote down things I didn't understand, basically. So there's parts where, um, like she was talking about like responsibility and that we were somehow maybe we would be responsible for. Our, what we become um but i had no idea what that meant like i was just asking do you mean that we're responsible for who we become like i'd, I'd form into a question because i genuinely didn't understand um and she said oh that's exactly what we were talking about mm. uh, and then my friends look at me it's like how did you know that and i was like i didn't know that mm. that's why i asked it as a question mm. and then yeah that was kind of the beginning of philosophy and after that i was just obsessed with existentialism mm. um from 2011 until 2016 mm. i had read nothing but french existentialism wow. that was it yeah like i had only read in french um, part of it was to improve my french i mean we had spent time in 
Quebec and Laval together, basically doing a program for five weeks where we'd learn French. Yeah. And yeah, like at first I thought it was just, okay, let's read these difficult books so I can get better at my French. Yeah. If I can read hard stuff, reading the easy stuff that I guess regular people would read would be easier. Uh, it made my... That's good logic, yeah. Yeah, it made sense. And then after a while, it was just like, oh, wow, I've read all this French philosophy. And I guess it kind of became the backbone of how it filter things and how I would think about things. So so why don't um, I ask then, you, you talk about existentialism. And for the layperson, what, what's the uh, what's the Coles Notes version of that? Uh, so I guess the Coles Notes of that would be it's all the questions around your existence, around being. Um, so what does it mean to exist? Um, what is our existence? Um, other questions are like, why do we exist? Or like the meaning, is there meaning behind your existence? All those questions around that. And I guess it's linked sort of to what is reality, but that gets closer to metaphysics. Uh, metaphysics is basically what are kind of the rules or the foundations that make it so that our reality works the way that it is. So I guess the best example I can kind of give uh, for someone who hasn't really looked into philosophy is um, in school, maybe you'll learn about physics. So those are the rules that um, guide how physical things work and how reality works. So if I have this pen, mm-hmm. uh, if I drop the pen, it falls to the ground. Mm-hmm. In, in this dimension. Yeah, in this dimension, exactly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's how gravity works in this dimension. Um, metaphysics would be around questions of why does gravity work like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's kind of like past the limitations of science, which makes studying it very difficult because mm-hmm. science you can kind of document, you can observe metaphysics, physics, not in the same way. Okay. And so existentialism is more, would, would be captured with the word ontology. Yeah, yeah basically. And, and so that's just a fancier way of sort of capturing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you did your undergrad in philosophy, is that fair to say? Yeah, I did my, my minor was in philosophy. And what was your major? My major was in biology. In biology, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it was a okay. it was an interesting mix. <laughs> I love that that you had that that uh, hard science slash questioning yeah. kind of built into your program. Hey, yeah, it was interesting how that worked. Uh, like philosophy, I just wanted to do it because it's what interested me. Um, biology, I knew I wanted to do sciences, and in high school, biology was never that interesting to me. I was I always I always thought I was going to go into physics, and then. University came, physics got extremely difficult, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then biology got a lot more interesting, and then I decided to make the change, and then that would lead me into uh, becoming a teacher, because I always knew I wanted to teach, um, and I wanted to teach sciences. Hmm. It came to a point where, like, okay, I'll, this degree is forcing me to specialize and basically focus on one of the sciences. Mm-hmm. Biology was the one that became very interesting especially in university and then i started to learn more about the body and all these new discoveries on how animals are classed all these changes and linking it to philosophy that's when it started to become obsessed in university it's like how does philosophy and science mix how do they work together and were you were you at all interested in the philosophy of science uh, yes, I was. I got to later on. I ran into so like like Francis Bacon and like um, like how science would work and get like, yeah. yeah, philosophy of sciences. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, that was that was super awesome, and that helped kind of s- 
I guess it still helps me teach sciences nowadays because uh, I'll always ask that question. Well, I'll ask kids like, can science prove things? And it's a very common misconception that people will say, yes, science proves things, uh, but it's actually the exact opposite that mm-hmm. science can also can only falsify things. Mm. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. like it's. And that would be Karl Popper. Yes, that would be Karl uh, Karl Popper. And then Francis Bacon must have used the inductive method, right? Deductive. Yeah. Method. Yeah. 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 That's all. yeah. Yeah. What did it look like to do philosophy, like in in academia, right? Or maybe outside of academia? So so the 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 literal practice of philosophizing. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Uh, that was essentially it was three things. It was basically reading, writing, um, and having conversations with others. Uh, basically how class was kind of set up and how even after we, we had finished, and I still meet up with a couple of my uh, friends that I studied philosophy with. We would basically have things that we have read where we would be doing our reading. Uh, we'd be writing down either simplified notes of what the author had said or notes around what we think the author had said, or notes on maybe a counter-argument against whatever the author was presenting. And then after that, or even before, we would just talk about what we were be reading, or talk, talk about certain questions and possible answers that maybe we would provide, or someone had shared with us, or we had gotten from another author. So a lot of it was around basically reading Books that are a little bit more difficult, I find. Um, I haven't really ran into. I mean, existentialism is a humanism is pretty easy to read. Like it's straightforward. Mm. It's kind of just like someone mm. lecturing you, basically. The writing part is it's interesting because I don't. I never really had someone sit down and show us specifically how to write philosophy, mm. uh, but it's more so they've kind of given like sort of a guide, and it's kind of like figure it out sort of and then we would get feedback obviously at the end of our assignments and then that's when we would find out oh okay are we writing philosophy or are we not um and then thinking thinking and conversating about it Mm. um, is usually where most the most interesting stuff usually happens just because reading is just reading i mean you can kind of sit down and read your friends and your colleagues Um, you kind of sit down and write with your friends and colleagues but it's a lot of just silence. <laughs> it's when you start talking about it that things get a little bit more exciting. Why do you think that is? What I'm hearing, what I'm smelling with with my you know uh, background is there. There's something about the doing of philosophy where uh, having it done socially makes it click or or makes it more interesting or I don't know. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts? Um, I think it does make it click just because. Sure, you can do the reading and you can do the writing on your own, but I feel like you need other people to be like, oh, maybe did you think about it this way? Or uh, other people can point out different points of views or different ideas that maybe you hadn't think had, haven't thought of yet or haven't run into. And I feel like that ref- helps refine how we understand philosophy or how we understand anything, really, um, just because it's through mistakes and through misunderstanding that we can better understand something. Mm. Um, and you can't, it's harder to do alone just cause sure we can learn how to like self-evaluate and like correct ourselves. Yeah. However, we can only see so far into our own mistakes cause we're, we're in it. It's our, 
it's how we're perceiving reality. But someone else could be like, hey, like maybe you had missed this. And then usually if you're open-minded enough, <laughs> it's usually you can improve from that. Um, maybe you don't understand this, that you're reminded uh, almost as if like Socrates were to remind you that you're better off almost knowing that there's much that you don't know. And I think people help you remind, help remind you about that. What? So, so I'm, I'm thinking about um, diverse audiences that are listening to us. Uh, the sheer majority, the the overwhelming majority of whom are not going to go um, to university to pursue philosophy. Mm. If if you were to counsel someone that that's interested in um, you know better understanding philosophy or taking up a practice of philosophizing, what would that look like in Cole's notes? Like they're not they're not going to you know uh, necessarily sit and read existential philosophy, right? Like what can they do? What kind of questions can they ask? With I don't know. Um, let's say that they somehow magically organize a community of people who are interested in also learning how to philosophize. Like what, what would that look like? I feel like it feels for just the person who wasn't gonna go into philosophy in university. Maybe a place to start would probably be ethics. Um, just cause I feel like that's one of the places where it's very practical. So ethics for the people that don't know, um, it's basically questions around how, how do we humans cut or tell the difference between what is good and what is bad. Um, in our day-to-day -day lives, we run into those, those decisions. Every time we make a decision, um, we basically run into ethics. Uh, we gotta use it, we gotta determine what do we value as good, which would be the decision we move, we move forward with, and what do we value as bad, um, which would be the decision we would probably avoid. Um, yeah, so ethics would probably be a, place, a good place to start just because, I mean, there are many models on what's good, what's bad. I mean, you ask almost every philosopher, they'll have a different answer. Um, but once people start looking at that, having those conversations and be like, hey, well, like, how do you decide what you're gonna do? How do you decide what's good for you or good for others or what's bad for you, what's bad for others? And you can start seeing that everyone kind of has their own system maybe or method of making their decisions. Mm. And but everyone's, if everyone did that kind of as a community, mm -hmm. then other people have more tools. Like some, I know some people will make a pros and cons list whenever they have to make like a big life decision. Yeah. Um, or they'll, I know some people that even just flip a coin, and then mm. after they flip the coin, they almost intuitively know whether they were hoping for heads or tails mm. while the coin was in the air, mm. um, and then they'll go with that. It's almost like a gut feeling, but it's like you can go deeper and be like, why do you have that gut feeling? How do you know that gut feeling can be trusted? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, other people will have like a council. So they'll almost give their big decisions to a council of people. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll talk to these people about it and then take out, uh, take conclusions from these conversations and then base their decisions off that. So like, mm. it's interesting how everyone almost has all these different methods. Um, some people may not even have a method mm. and it's kind of just they just they just know or mm. they just don't know and they just have they just live with it well i mean i i'd argue that that's also a method mm -hmm. right exactly if you yeah. can't vocalize something or 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 give a name to it doesn't mean that others haven't <laughs> mm -hmm. i mean odds yeah. are that somebody has right yeah mm -hmm. and then yeah i think it's super interesting that like everyone has this different way of making decisions and 
I mean, if you never run into philosophy, you probably wouldn't be questioning those methods that you use. They're just like, oh, this is how I do things, and that's that. Uh, but now, is that is, is that fair to say though? Like, just to challenge you a, li- a little bit, because mm-hmm. maybe not on an individual level, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, having that meta awareness and and reflecting on yourself. You know, why did I do this? Why? Did I, I mean, everybody does that, but but in in a systematic way, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. But but in other practices, like you know, let's say quality improvement in healthcare, when you're wanting to re- restructure and explore why something is happening, right? You do that, but you don't, you know, call it philosophy. Right. You call it, I don't know, Lean Six Sigma or, uh, you know, you use tools like a fishbone diagram or do, do, do you see what I mean? Right. And maybe it's the case that the originators of this this process or tool, you know, at one point studied philosophy. We don't know that. But I feel like people get to similar places from different um, with different histories. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think that is fair to say just because, I mean, I'm referring to it just as philosophy. But, yeah, you're right. They could, it could be rebranded as something else or even towards something more specific. Um, like for me, it would be teaching, and we have this method called inquiry. What is that? It's essentially we, instead of having the teacher just tell you, here's the content material, this is what it is, learn it. Um, it would be like here's a question or you as a student, you formulate a question and now you got to explore it. Maybe not come up with an answer, but maybe you can get to better questions, which essentially it's a Socratic method, but just rebranded into like a teaching technique. Um, mm. It's got to be similar to other um, fields. Like uh, engineers have, like they have like, it's like a cycle that they go through to basically. PDSA? Uh, maybe, but they like go through the methods and, they would start with something, end with a product, see if they can improve that product. And they would just continuously go through the cycle. To... That, that would be a PDSA, uh, Plan, okay. Do, Study, Act. Yeah. And you just okay. continuously... Yeah. yeah, and just continuously do that to improve whatever you're improving. Yeah, um, yeah and that's, that's, def- that's definitely linked to philosophy. I mean, you're doing something, and then after you're reflecting on it, so how do you make it better? And then you continually do that, but it's not labeled as philosophy directly so. so so i feel like we're getting to a place where where um when folks think about philosophy they might think of it as that academic discipline of you know sitting your butt down and reading and then writing mm-hmm. maybe the socratic method that, that sort of back and forthness but what you're inviting us to consider i think is is that uh the practice of philosophy is far broader yeah definitely can i can I invite you to maybe try to summarize? I know <laughs> to maybe try to summarize what this practice of philosophy is that would encompass PDSA cycles and engineering and I don't know quality improvement and all the things that we've been talking about pedagogy. Yeah, oh, to make it as broad good as luck, possible. Good luck. Yeah, good luck is right. <laughs> um, that's hard. I think the best way I could probably summarize that is, I guess, the etymological definition of philosophy. It's like the origin of its words. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sophie is wisdom and then Philo is love so it's basically the love of wisdom and I think that's probably the best way that it encompasses everything in every mm-hmm. field um, just because to go through and use some of these teaching techniques or use some of these uh, techniques that we use in like engineering or architectural or basically any field um, you got to love the wisdom that's around your field like you got to be continuously looking to improve it's funny. I would probably even simplify it as just like nerding down 
<laughs> about whatever you're into because you can have a philosophy about almost anything. Um, like Game of Thrones is super popular right now, and then there's a there's a book in chapters that I've run into that it's, it's basically the philosophy of Game of Thrones, and it's just nerding down on some of the ideas in Game of Thrones that are linked to philosophy. Uh, hmm. I guess there are branches of philosophy that we have to like we categorize different techniques and different uh, fields mm. those ideas would fit into. Um, so I get, like I mentioned, like ethics would be one of those things. So whenever we're thinking about what's good, what's bad in whatever field, so like the ethics of science would be what should we do in science and what shouldn't we do in science? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like... For... That's hard. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, like, that's a really big question, yeah. That's what makes it fun, I think. Um, for those people who have uh, survived up to this point of uh, nerding down on nerding down, um, let, let's maybe pop out a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So you've written a few books. Right. Um, how many in total? Um, three right now. Yeah, three. Three in total. What are they? Uh, first one, well, the title is Dasein Journal, a collection of philosophical thought. So I had written it when I was 22. Um, and it was just basically some of the big ideas, some of the big questions that I've been asking myself since I could remember um, and then going back and looking at, okay, where, what are the origins of these ideas? What are the origins of these questions? Kind of to like re-educate myself. Cause I knew mm. I was educated by school, by my family, by the world, mm. but what are the origins of that? Why, why do I think the way that I think, uh, what are some events or people that I ran into that really um, shaped my thinking shaped how I viewed the world? And so t- two questions here. One is, mm. um, that saying, what, where did that come from? Uh, so Dasein, or yeah, that Dasein is a German word uh, for being there. So Da means there, Sein is being. I believe it's Martin Heidegger that coined the term. Uh, Dasein, it's basically it's a fancy word for a human being's existential experience, or in general, what all human beings are, and they're the beings that are there. Mm. Just simple that they could, as simple that they can make it, but also as complicated maybe as they can make it because it's mm. Dazan is used as a starting point to kind of describe um, or examine the human experience. And what does it mean to be human would be the same thing as asking, what does it mean to be a Dazan? What does it mean to be the being that's there? Mm. I feel like that's in, 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 in my very limited work with uh, existentialism, that was for me, the overlap between um, Eastern contemplative traditions of um, being there and equanimity and and um, um, riding the wave of your awareness and Western thinking, um, th- does that connect for you? Uh, yeah, that's funny you mentioned that that it's like the link between Eastern and Western philosophy because in the book midway through, I actually take a trip to um, the Philippines or I go back to the Eastern world and then I kind of what I use it as a vacation. Um, so it's, a, it's literally a break in the, in the journal. So nothing is written during those times. Um, but coming back, I also take back, um, different ideas that I got from the philosophy in the Philippines or philosophy in the East, just mm. by like living there, seeing how it's different mm. and then writing about it, thinking about it. Once I came back, that there was that connection between, uh, the Eastern world and the Western world. And a lot of it is how we view being which is this like super general world word mm-hmm. that is almost that is impossible to um, define or so they say and 
Yeah. <laughs> and and why the Philippines? Um, cause that's that's where my family's from, and it was like just see the difference between the Western world living here in Canada, and then seeing how mm-hmm. the Eastern world kind of functioned. Um, different values that were found in the Eastern world. I was lucky enough that I ran into some philosophy texts while in the Philippines, just Mm. uh, near the end. I visited a library, ran into this book. And again, it was linked to this idea of Dasein, this idea of like, what does it mean to be a human person? It was the philosophy, the book was titled The Philosophy of the Human Person. Oh, wow. That's kind of, that hits the nail on the head. Yeah, exactly. Like right (laughs) on there. And I was like, huh, interesting how this, it's like my last week here and I run into this book so now I can read it while I fly back home. That's awesome. And then the other, the other observation for me is that not every 22-year-old decides to <laughs> write a fucking book <laughs> on why they think what they think yeah. and where those ideas came from. What was it about uh, your life at that point in time that led you to want to do that? Basically, I had just finished university my first degree in sciences and then my philosophy prof had talked to me and he's like, Hey, so like, what are your plans for next year? Um, and I had told him like I had got accepted into education so I could take another two years study and become a teacher. But I had also gotten a job opportunity to teach English in Quebec. It's similar to the explore program. Um, mm-hmm. but it was, uh, instead of students going there to going to Quebec to learn French, we would be going to Quebec to teach English. Cool. kind of flipped around a little bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then i was like trying to decide again i had done my pros and cons list and like could flip that coin and then like mm-hmm. counsel mm-hmm. ask a bunch of people you did all the things yeah eh? i did all the things exactly <laughs> see what was i wanted to be sure um and then i decided to go to quebec i was like yeah i could i could go back and study for two years but i just wanted to see like, i don't know i could always become a student again um so I talked to him and said, oh, yeah, I'm going to live in Quebec for a year. And he said, oh, well, you do the reading for fun anyways in philosophy. Why don't you just continue research while you're out there? And I was like, huh, I never really thought about it that way. Um, so I said, okay, sure. And then while, while traveling there, I was kind of like, okay, well, how do I continue doing my research in philosophy? And then that's when I started asking similar questions that you had just asked me today. It's like, what, what does the practice of philosophy look like? Mm. Um, so out in Quebec, I had like, started i guess devising a plan of okay how am i gonna use philosophy while i'm out here and luckily i had a library that was like a walking distance from my place so i decided okay well i'm just gonna read a bunch of philosophical texts that i have access to here in french because they had no i wouldn't say they had no english documents but it was harder to get (laughs) let's just say Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um now that i think about it it was almost as if like the best way I could describe it is almost I was possessed towards doing all this. Cause even really? now, yeah, I don't, I can't quite explain how I was able to be that disciplined with it. Cause I remember at, at one point I had decided to wake up at 5am every morning to mm-hmm. read philosophy. Um, and it would be timed. It would be, I would read until six and I would write mm-hmm. until uh, six thirty. And then from about 6.30, 6.45, get ready for work and then go to work. And I would walk to work while also listening to an ebook that was uh, a different philosophical text that I was reading. Um, and that was just repeated every day. And, and how long did you do that for? Um, I did that for about nine months. Holy smokes, man. Yeah. It was, it was pretty crazy. And I was like, I don't really wake up that early. Like even now, I don't wake up at five anymore. Um, mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it was like, so there was something there that was just compelling me to do that. 
Um, mm. And then I would turn those readings and writings uh, and notes into full-on uh, written text. So I would go back. Uh, so I would do that from Monday to Saturday. And then Sunday, I would look back at all my notes and then try to formulate them and articulate them into full-on sentences. Um, but also while trying to simplify them as much as possible so that a person who, let's say, wasn't that into philosophy or didn't have the background, um, basically I was trying to imagine myself um, in grade 11. So when I just started, that same feeling of like, what is this person talking about? Mm-hmm. But try to simplify it as much as I could so that they could understand. Um, and yeah, so I did that for like, yeah, the nine months, came back to Winnipeg, and then I'd realized, oh, I had a, enough content to basically turn this into a book. And then, yeah, so it's started to do some research around that. And it's funny because I had already, maybe two years prior, I had already thought about writing a book. Um, and I knew I was going to do it in my lifetime. But in my head, it was like going to be something that I had done or that I would have done in like my later years, like when I was like 40 or 50 or 60, even after gray beard and everything. Yeah, exactly. Gray beard and everything. The whole, I look like Socrates type thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then, yeah, it kind of just happened. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I have the content. Um, and I remember vividly being at work in Winnipeg when I was in grade 12 and then looking at how to publish a book, um, going through different websites and then seeing what are the criteria. And I remember just sitting and be like, oh, crap, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> uh, this mm. sounds crazy. Like, there's no way I can put down like 100 plus pages of work and then put it all together. And then formatting was all confusing. I wasn't really that good at Excel mm. or uh, Word, Microsoft Word, mm. sorry. And mm. then fast forward to after I had all this documents ready and I was like, oh, well, I guess I could try. I mean, this looks like there's a guy that looks simpler than it was two years ago. Um, mm. Someone must have revamped his website because, <laughs> or maybe I got smarter. Who knows? Um, yeah. Maybe both. Yeah, maybe <laughs> both. And then yeah, I just went through that. At first I had done it through a local um, publishing uh, company in Winnipeg. Yeah. Um, and what, what did that look like? Like the, the process that you have to put down a deposit that they pay you mm-hmm. in advance? Like, what 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 did that look like? Basically, at first it was I had to put my work onto like a Microsoft Word document, turn it into a PDF, and then basically I just put this on a flash drive, brought it to them, and then they got me to sign a bunch of paperwork. How they would put the books into their stores or online stores, and they would take this much as a cut. And if you wanted, you can pay this much amount, and we'll make your cover page and your. Um, the back and the little uh, blurb is what they say, like the little description of what the book's about. Um, and then they would show me that. They would show me a copy of the book. And if they, if I liked what it was, then we're good to go, make the payments. And that was that. Um, mm. Yeah, so at first I had someone make the covers and all that. I always had described what I kind of wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't too bad of a process. Wow. Yeah, and then the hard part, so it's funny because I always say um, the easy part is writing the book. The hard part is what all the stuff that you do after. So like all the marketing, mm-hmm. getting people to realize that you've written a book, um, mm-hmm. selling it was a whole other or- ordeal. 
Um, why don't we Why don't we jump into that uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, as we as we wrap up the the other two books that you wrote, mm-hmm. right? Because you've probably learned a lot since then too, mm-hmm. right? Because um, there's something about this process of marketing what's important to you, right? right? And then selling it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and creating content that I th- I'd like to return to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so book number two. Yeah. So book number two is how to never be broke again. So the philosophy one was basically just like my own ideas. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's great. But I don't know if people really care. Um, luckily, enough people cared that I was able to like break even and make a little bit of a profit the first one. In the second book, I wanted something a little bit more practical that someone could pick up whether they're into philosophy or not and then take some value out of it, use it uh, in their day-to-day lives um, and have actual uh, tangible practices that they can use instead of just like thinking about stuff. So How to Never Be Broke Again was basically 10 principles on like financial literacy so that a person could essentially do that. How did you begin to think about uh, financial literacy and and Mm. what was the turning point for you in realizing that's important? For me, it was probably when I was 17. Um, I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is like one of those famous books in financial literacy. Um, and then I had looked at, I began questioning how I had used money and all the, my relationship with money basically, um, in high school. And I was like, oh, wow. Like I started working at 15 and a half. I've saved some money, but nothing crazy. Um, most of my money is spent just on food and eating out and going to the movies and hanging out with friends. Um, and I was like, oh crap, like. My mom's an accountant, but I don't know too much about money other than it should be saved. It seems like people just tell me to save it so I can spend it later on. Um, And I was like, oh, wow, I don't really understand money. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, I should probably start learning about this. And I actually ran into a friend that had uh, presented an opportunity to me about getting into the financial industry. And then basically the, Mm. the gig was to help others become more financially literate or help others better understand money and then that was that was the point where i was like oh i don't understand how money works how how in the world would i help other people if i can't even handle myself i can't even help myself when it comes to finances mm-hmm. so that's what kind of lit a fire uh, under my ass to just like okay well, let's figure this out like, there's mm-hmm. there's people out there that know how to use money um mm-hmm. there's resources out there i should, I should figure it out uh, so that's what started around 17 until uh-huh. 23. Um, and again, I had to like, instead of just reading about it, I started to invest myself and figure out how all that worked and mm-hmm. started looking at formulas and whatnot and trying to simplify it so that a person wouldn't have to do like five years of meeting mentors, finding different resources, figuring out what's good, what's bad, um, mm-hmm. that they could just get that info and then in a short amount of time they can get sped up if let's say they weren't fortunate enough to run into someone to show them how how money worked or um, how it's how it can be used uh, and whatnot Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah that was kind of the inspiration for how to never be broke again Uh, the writing process was a little bit different too just because the first one was a journal so i could just sit down write whatever was i thought was important that day and then just move on to the next day it could be a completely different subject but mm-hmm. this one this one was the second one was i was trying to create a system basically um and articulate it as simple as simply as possible of basically how to never be broke again and mm. the 10 rules thing was kind of just like okay well let's just make 10 rules just because it's a nice number 
Um, but then after people, people like that stuff too. It's sellable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's sellable. And I really want to make sure that each of the rules play with each other and interact so that it it's necessary that a person uses those those ten rules. And if they were to use nine, then it wouldn't work anymore. It wouldn't be how to never be broke again. It would be maybe you would be close to never be broke again, but mm there's a chance that you could be broke. And then I also had to look at it like legally. So like to like market something that says how to never be broke again. Um, mm. There's some like legal issues around that. So like, what? To, like, like just briefly, like what, what's an example? Uh, like example, um, like if you don't put like your disclaimer that this is not uh, like financial advice, that you're not an accountant, you're not a lawyer, um, and that you should always get like your your second opinion, get your own financial advice from professionals. Um, if I were to like, let's say if I'd forgotten to put that, um, I could get myself into some real trouble just because I'd be saying, hey, you could never be broke again, read this and do this. And then if there's no disclaimer um, and someone does something, but let's say they interpret it not the same way that the author intended, or they do something that um, they should not have or didn't do the research or whatnot and then now they lose out on a bunch of money or mm -hmm. they're worse than broke and then now they can just like go after you because they'll be like oh well this this author said i would never be broke if i did this and i did it um and now and, look what and happened i'm broke <laughs> yeah exactly yeah now i'm broke or now okay. i'm dead um, huh. so i was like okay well it was, it was different it wasn't like writing philosophy where um i just have to make sure that i'm actually like telling people what my where these ideas are coming from or like looking at the origins of ideas now it was more like okay well i gotta make sure that one this system actually keeps people from never being broke again um but that i have to make sure that things are clear enough so that people don't misunderstand things or um again have that like the legal background of everything's I'm protected and the person who's reading the book is protected just because like once you start dealing with money, um, then it's real <laughs> and people are going to make mm. real decisions with that. And mm. you have to like think about, okay, well, how am I going to be responsible if something goes wrong or if something goes right? Mm. And so book number three, book number three was, this was, this was most recently. This was, yeah, this was, this was yeah, the yeah. most recently. Yeah. This is, uh, this is essentially the first book, um, but it's in, in its original form. Uh, because the book was originally written in French. So like I had mentioned before, um, my relationship with philosophy in the beginning was, it was a way to improve my French, uh, be able to think, uh, be able to read, and be able to write better in French. So the first mm -hmm. book was actually all written in French, and I had decided to publish it in English just because meeting with like uh, my marketing team and just talking about it, we had basically figured out that, okay, your first books probably should be in English. It's going to be a hard sell in Winnipeg. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that's fair. And I also looked at it as an opportunity to simplify things even more. I found mm -hmm. that I could refine my thought from French into English and then make it even clearer. Mm -hmm. um, so I had done that. And then after a couple, I guess the, after those two years, I was sitting there and I was like, oh, it's hard to creep into my mind that Oh, maybe I had like sold sold out. <laughs> that, okay, mm -hmm. maybe I shouldn't have released it in English. And then I was like, okay, well, whatever. We'll just release the original, just to say that I did, and just so that I can basically sleep better at night. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
because I want to keep it in its original form, right? Like there's there's a difference when you translate something. You lose something. And for me, I justified it as like, okay, I'd refined the thought. So maybe the English uh, one is a little bit better. Um, maybe it's clear. Who knows? But the original, there's something that that's what it was intended to be. It was intended to be written in French. It was intended to be uh, my thought in French and examined in French. So I'd released it and... Yeah. However, um, selling it definitely was it was a huge difference. <laughs> like mm. I think I've only sold like two copies of the second one, even though it's the exact same book, just in French. But, I mean, the market mm. more people speak English, so that makes sense. But, or, but you're, you feel like you have closure. Yeah, exactly. I, have, I feel I have closure, so it's 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 fine. Like <laughs> mm. it wasn't. I never really got into writing uh, for the money. Uh, it was kind of just like, oh, if it's if it's a byproduct, then cool, cherry on top. If not, right. I get to sleep at night. <laughs> nice. And so, so as we're coming to a close here, I'm, I'm curious if you if you could um, pull out three sort of key learnings about mm. the process of writing, publishing, marketing mm. um, books for people who may be interested in that. What, what would those be? What would you share with people? Maybe your next book could be on uh, on how to write a book. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I thought about it. <laughs> people ask. Um, mm-hmm. first one is it's periods of immersion um, so for me and maybe for other people um, writing is not my it's not my primary source of income it's not my career basically um, it's something that I kind of do on the side um, but a period of immersion is a time a block of time it could be a couple of weeks couple of months couple of years where you immerse yourself into something. And I think that that process is important when it comes to writing, just because like life happens and I'm not writing every day anymore. But once there comes a time where I'm going to be writing a book, then I go into what's called the period of immersion. So it's bulk of time where all I'm doing, all I'm focused on is just writing. You immerse yourself into that. You start, you're writing every day. Um, you're making sure that you decide how many hours a day you're going to write, whether it be an hour or 45 minutes uh, or even 15 minutes, but you immerse yourself into that, that you're you just go through the process of, I'm just going to write whatever comes out, comes out. Um, I can focus on the editing after. Mm. Um, so that'll be the first process is so just go into that mode of, okay, I'm going to immerse myself into writing um, whatever that means. And that means basically you're, doing research around different writing techniques, doing research around kind of like this question of what are some, what are like the, the key points of writing. Um, so so in, the, in this writing process or in this immersion mm. process, you would also include studying how to write? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, just because, yeah, your focus is basically to just write. Like you immerse yourself, you go into those shoes of, okay, um, I'm an author now. Um, whether it be your first book or your fourth, you're going stepping into that. You're putting on that hat that okay, I'm I'm a writer. Maybe I'm a bartender at night. Maybe I'm a teacher. Maybe I'm a student. But right now, I'm fully immersed in being a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'd be step one. Step two, that manuscript is basically done. Um, then you would go into editing and formatting. Um, so that's making sure your book is ready for the public basically um is it legible does it make sense you're finding other people you're working with other people this is where i find a team is huge um, yes you can self-publish do this all on your own all on your own um, but that's where 
things get a little crazy because um, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I don't know if people realize, but it's a ton of work to write a book. Um, a lot of it comes in the editing and formatting part, just because writing it, uh, now we have computers, you just sit there and type your thoughts, think about it, write it down. Um, that part's easier, I find. Mm. Uh, but the editing and the formatting, making sure that you can turn these words into an actual physical book is the hard part. Mm. Uh, making sure that there's no mistakes and you're covering all your bases. Uh, and then the last part's the marketing and like the obviously you're gonna have to sell this book um, if you want to be able to write more books because then you'll take basically you take your profits from the book and then you'll recycle it to the next book mm -hmm. and then basically you fund you can use your first book to fund the next ones or whatnot. And when does when does marketing begin? At first, I had done it just once the book was done. Once the book I had a physical book in my hand, what I'd gone through the whole process of idea of book into here's a physical copy of the book then i would start marketing uh, now however i just start marketing once once the idea is there hmm. uh, once i know that i'm going to write this book or that i am writing this book that's where i start marketing and i got this from gary vaynerchuk or gary v hmm. where he talks about like uh documenting the process and not not creating when you're making content um, and i find that a lot of people do kind of like that i feel that they see what goes on in the background. So mm -hmm. they see what does it actually look like to write a book. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's cool that you get to meet and even have discussions like this, that this will probably be used in a future one of my books that just be able to talk about these ideas. Um, but there's other parts where it's just sitting down and typing on your laptop, which is not that exciting, <laughs> but it's it's part of the process or well, sitting down i'll, I'll, I'll share editing. with you one of your posts on instagram was you talked about um singular focus you had a term for it i, I really yeah. like it. it was punchy um yeah. and it was literally a time lapse of you sitting for god knows how long mm -hmm. typing and writing yeah yeah basically so yeah having laser focus like that where that again it comes with the periods of immersion where you just get really focused on whatever you got to do and you're just doing that. Um, so if you're making music, then you're just making music. If you're writing a book, then you're just writing. Um, and yeah, it was just, a t uh, yeah, I remember making that video. It's just a time lapse of me. I think that time it was correcting uh, and planning for teaching. And it was just having that laser focus of, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And it's cool because I think some people call it flow too, where you get into a flow state mm -hmm. where you stop, you almost stop thinking and then things just come. So you're just like, okay, this is the plan. Mm -hmm. Like for me that day was, okay, here's the corrections. It was just, okay, this is right. This is right. This is right. That's wrong. This is right. This is right. This is right. That's wrong. Or that's wrong. This is right. Mm -hmm. And there was no real random thoughts coming in. Like I wasn't thinking of, okay, what's for dinner? Or I wasn't thinking of, um, oh, I wonder what my girlfriend's up to right now. Or mm -hmm. um, my foot's itchy. Uh, it was just focused on whatever the task was on hand. And I think that's one of the cool things of when you find out what you want to do or if you want to get a little more spiritual, what you're meant to do, but you can tap into the, that laser focus where it's like, okay, well, this is what I got to do. And it just, you stay focused for however, however long it is. I think that was like maybe two and a half hours, maybe. I mean, time lapsed um, into like two minutes. Was yeah. Time lapsed in two minutes. Yeah. And it's just, da -da 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 -da. and it's just, it's, 
I think it's interesting that the, how the time lapse works like that because it's like people see like this fast forward version of what you're doing and it looks a little bit more exciting because you're like moving so fast and it's condensed all this time but then mm. if you think about it like that's just the person sitting down <laughs> writing or doing some mm. work mm. for like two to three hours just mm. a, a regular shift and that wouldn't be entertaining <laughs> to watch in real life you'd be like oh, okay well i'm gonna go do something else but right right it's it's part of the process like i mean you sh you must feel the same way i mean you're you're in academia you're doing your your masters um there's times where you're just sitting there doing what you got to do and to the outside point of view it's not the most exciting thing but when you're in it there's a lot of oh, there's a, there's lot, a lot going more on. going on yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot, a lot going on yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. So as we're um, as we're coming to an end here, I'm I'm curious: is there is there anything that is there any way that you want to uh, tie together our conversation? Um, um, any anything that stood out for you? I think even the practice of this podcast. So I guess like we had started with philosophy, thinking of talking about different um, ideas that we could present here, um, but just having this conversation, I feel that even I understand myself a little bit more and some of the ideas that I've had a little bit more and I really appreciate that you brought up a lot of things that I never really looked at um, mm. and questions that I never really asked and those hard questions um, having conversations like this with other people I think it's beneficial just because we can it helps us figure each other out mm. um, I get a better understanding of where you're coming from you get a better understanding of where I'm coming from mm -hmm. but each of us I hope anyway if the conversation was of any value maybe to ourselves is that we have a better understanding of how we see the world. Um, That's awesome. Just basically, basically the, well, I guess what we're doing, what we're both doing here is refining our thought and helping each other refine our thought. Mm -hmm. And helping others while we're at it, I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully. I mean. Um, if there were to be a question I haven't yet asked you, what would it be? Well, I guess one that's popping out in my head is uh, like how, how would, would a person not be broke ever again? <laughs> But there's, there's, still, there's a lot of questions you probably didn't ask me. Yeah, they asked me some crazy questions. I'm going to have a hard time sleeping at night sometimes. I'll just write it down. <laughs> just hit me up. Send me a message. We'll chat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll be the, uh, the post-chat chat. Um, yeah. But I imagine people could buy your book and uh, learn that way too, right? About how to yeah. ever be yeah, exactly. Or even, even see my Instagram. I mean, uh, my Instagram at, at Patrick J. Hilario. Yeah. Uh, Basically, I've pretty much given out all the content around my book for free. Um, it goes kind of in more detail than the book. Um, some people think I'm crazy for that. They're just like, why are you giving out everything for free? And they could just pay for the book. And I was like, yeah, but the whole thing with how I never broke again is I didn't really write it for the money. I mean, I'm doing it for you guys. <laughs> I want you guys to never be broke again. Mm. Kind of validates that this system kind of works. Mm. Um, so solid last question and i'm sure yeah. you've heard it before who are you becoming oh that is a great question um it's funny i've been thinking about that recently i am aiming to become what's called the ubermensch uh german word philosophical concept um, uber is yeah Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, uber is super or over and then mantra is man or person. So it's like the super person or the over person. Um, basically, it's the ideal of your, your best self. That's probably the best way I can, or the simplest way I can define it. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what 
what is the best version of Patrick look like? Um, mm. And kind of make that as like my own role model. Um, I'm trying to, another way I can kind of paint that picture is I'm trying to make the gap of who I was and who uh, I am as wide as possible so that if past Patrick could meet future or present Patrick that the gap would be so wide that past Patrick would just be in awe of where present or future Patrick would be at or he'd be like oh that's the role model I want to I want I want as a role model that's the person I want as a coach that's the person I want as a mentor right now it's basically improving on the things that I value which is health wealth relationships uh, and passions so how can I be better how can I be healthier I'm trying to become the healthiest version of myself I'm trying to become I guess the wealthiest version of myself um, the person with the healthiest relationships with other people around my family or around by in my life family friends acquaintances whatever um, and then just being able to do what I'm passionate about every day basically hmm. um, I love yeah. that. well you're well on your way man yeah thank you <laughs> do my best well, pleasure talking to you, Patrick. Yeah, that was awesome. Thanks a lot, Art. That's it for this episode, folks. Head on over to letsdevelopodcast.com for detailed show notes to quench your thirst for knowledge. If you like what you heard, and even if you didn't, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to let us know how we're doing. We're in it together. The Let's Develop Podcast is co-created by Chris Raymond, executive producer and music maker, Emily Scollin, digital content mastermind, and yours truly, Artist Oyans, host and producer. Special thanks to Brittany Fraser and others for continuing to inspire us, teach us, and build us together. See you next time.